But uh, this week, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Um, and I've called this uh, sermon, uh, The Untold Significance of the Resurrection. Um, not because I'm going to tell you something which is utterly novel. That would be completely wrong, I'm sure. But uh, I'm going to tell you something which I think is underplayed significantly and uh, that will help us, I believe, to worship the Lord and understand what God has done by raising the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. Now, in some ways, uh, 1 Corinthians is the reverse of Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, you, you've probably worked out that Paul's letters are organized in the New Testament according to their length, generally speaking. The longest is first, and the longer the letter, generally, the more important it is. But uh, that's the order in which the New Testament uh, puts the letters of Paul. So Romans is there at the beginning, and then 1 Corinthians uh, follows it. And it's interesting to put them side by side because they're very different in many ways. And as I say, in a sense, they're the reverse of one another because Romans begins, and we'll turn to that a little later on, but I'm not going to turn to it now. Romans begins with the truth that lies at the very heart of the gospel, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Romans begins with. And then Paul explains all the uh, life-saving doctrines that flow from the resurrection. And then after he's done a few amazing chapters on that, he closes with practical applications. That's the order of Romans. Now, when you come to the second book of Paul's, the second letter of Paul's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, uh, it's the reverse. Paul spends most of the letter dealing with pressing practical church issues. And then he ends with this great exposition of the doctrine of the resurrection in the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Now, there are different reasons why you might put the most important thing either first or last if you were writing something, but be in no doubt that to Paul, this is the most important thing, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It's reading the first couple of verses of the chapter. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. Sometimes people ask, what is the minimum that you have to believe in order to be a true Christian? Or to put it another way, what is the irreducible essence of the gospel? To use rather more posh words. Um, I've often been asked that question. Um, I'm not sure it's the most helpful question to ask. Um, I'd rather be asking, what is the most I can do to prove I'm a Christian or something like that? But here, I believe, is the closest that you'll get in the Bible uh, to the essence of the gospel, the closest you'll get to an answer. What is the minimum I have to believe in order to be a Christian? It is an important question. Um, some of us have been debating recently, very recently, about the Duke of Edinburgh, who very sadly passed away before he could reach his 100th birthday. And I'm sure many of you were looking at the television uh, uh, on his funeral and so on and so forth. But one of the things that's come out recently, I wasn't very aware of it, was the Duke of Edinburgh's great claim to be a Christian. And um, 
if you look at what he actually believed, if you look at the people that he listened to, uh, um, you'd have to conclude that he wasn't, he certainly wasn't an orthodox evangelical by um, uh, the way that we might look at things. But nonetheless, what impressed me was the fact that very clearly what emerged from the faith of the Duke of Edinburgh was that he definitely believed that Christ died upon the cross for our sins and that he rose again physically and bodily from the dead. And he very clearly proclaimed this, which is rather more than quite a lot of bishops would do. But the Lord had obviously worked in his heart to a considerable extent. He had a large library of theological books and so on. Um, and so you come back to the question, what is the, what is the minimum that one can believe and yet still credibly have a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and say that you truly are a Christian. Well, here we are. Look at verses three to five of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But what I received, I passed on to you. Now, that very wording is important. Because um, a couple of chapters early, earlier, for I received what I passed on to you, they're familiar words to you, normally in connection with what? With with the Lord's Supper. I received what I passed on to you. Here is um, the Christian tradition that Paul had received. This is the very truth that he had received. And then what follows is in the form of a kind of um, uh, established creed, the way it's written. I won't go into that in detail. We haven't got time, but, but here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is absolutely foundational. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And here he is passing on this thing, this creed, which is of most importance that they have received. There are two essential truths here, which you say, he says are according to the scriptures. He says two other things which back them up or demonstrate that they're true. But the, here they are. Two truths that the Corinthians claim to believe and hold firmly. Paul is going to cast doubts on their claims, but... We're not going to preempt the argument of this chapter, certainly not this week. But here are the two things. First, foundational things. Christ died for our sins. This, says Paul, was in tune with the whole tenor of Scripture. Uh, and uh, Mark was speaking about this uh, in his prayer. He says this is woven into the whole fabric of Scripture. And, of course, it's true. Absolutely. That's what we know from the whole Scripture, the whole sacrificial system which is there throughout the whole Old Testament, teaches about a substitutionary death. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And then second, and that was proved by his burial. That's the burial proves that he died. He actually died. So there's the fulfillment. He died for our sins, proved by the burial. Second thing, Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Again, according to the whole tenor of Scripture. Um, sometimes people question this. Um, I notice Mark didn't actually quote in his prayer um, scriptures that supported this aspect of things. But nonetheless, he could have done very easily because it's there throughout the whole of Scripture. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ himself did on that first Easter evening when he met with all his disciples? We read that he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
this is what is written. And of course, he had 40 days, didn't he, between his resurrection and his ascension, where he spent a lot of time, much of which I'm sure is unrecorded in the scriptures, where he spoke with his disciples and just went through the scriptures and told them where they can find about his death and where the scriptures talked about his resurrection on the third day. And their minds were blown. They'd never seen the scriptures taught in this way before. He gave a New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament, which is what we're meant to then follow on and, and teach as uh, Christian believers and, and, and preachers. And we know what he told them because we have the preaching and the teaching of the apostles and the rest of the New Testament. And sometimes they take scriptures and they, and they give them all sorts of interpretations. We wouldn't have dreamt of possibly if we just had the Old Testament. But these are interpretations that Jesus gave and said, this is how you're to see it. This is what is teaching. And certainly that was the case when it came to the most important thing, which is the resurrection from the dead. So it's, it's really significant here. Here are these two gospel truths that are of first importance. And if anyone genuinely believes in and takes their stand on the death and resurrection of Christ, as Paul had received it, and as Paul has passed it on, these historical facts, then um, we can be as generous as to say that they are Christians. We want to know other things, I'm sure, but there's a good starting point. But here's the thing. If I were to ask you why Christ's death is of first importance, I'm sure you'd be able to tell me. I'm sure you know what he died for our sins means. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. He died taking the punishment we deserve. You say, well, I know this. Of course you know this. The reason you know this is because you've been in a good, sound evangelical church for a number of years. You've heard it preached on time and time and time again. You know that's what he died for our sins means, and you'd be absolutely correct. This is absolutely vital. But if I were to say to you, Okay, you understand the doctrine behind the event when we come to the crucifixion of Christ. But do you understand the doctrine behind the event when we come to the resurrection? This resurrection of Christ on the third day, which is of first importance. Do you understand what it really teaches us? I think there's an untold story here in many ways. I'd suggest that in our evangelical tradition, which we follow uh, we, we rightly emphasize the vital meaning of the cross, but tend, I would suggest, rather shockingly to neglect the significance of the empty tomb. And I think the problem within our evangelical tradition begins with our apparent blindness to the balance of apostolic preaching. If you were to consider the first great uh, model Christian sermon, which was preached by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 20, in chapter 2, of course, on the day of Pentecost. You know the circumstance, you know the pouring down of the Spirit on that day of Pentecost, and how uh, the Apostles and others are filled with the Spirit, and they go around speaking in foreign languages, and everyone's amazed, they're praising God in their own uh, tongue, and uh, they, a great crowd assembles because of the great noise 
of the coming of the Spirit. And uh, Peter then stands up and he addresses this huge crowd in Jerusalem who gathered for the Feast of Pentecost and have been hit by this amazing event. And Peter then preaches what is, in many ways, a, a, a wonderful model um, evangelistic sermon. But if you look at it in any detail at all, you'll find that it contains just one brief reference to the cross with no explanation of justification by faith alone uh, or substitutionary atonement or any of the great doctrines which are beloved by us and are of vital importance, but Paul explains in great detail in Romans, and we delight to know and understand all these things. But the vast bulk of that sermon of Peter's on the day of Pentecost is about the exaltation of Jesus and its implications. It begins with the resurrection. That is the most fundamental thing in Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost and his application right at the end, the final words of the sermon as we have them recorded for us in Acts 2 are these. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this man whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. This is God's great work. He has made him through the resurrection both Lord and Messiah. This is all a consequence of the resurrection. It's because of the resurrection that I preach this great truth to you, says the Apostle Paul to, uh, Paul, uh, Peter. This is why it is of first importance. The resurrection made Jesus who he is in the eyes of the apostles and in the eyes of those who were hearing him. Now, to understand this better, I'd like you now to turn, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, to Romans chapter 1. And um, I think we I think may even have that before us. Here it is. Um, Romans 1, 1 to 4. And I'm, I'm just going to, to read it to you. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship, to, uh, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Anyway, it's the first four verses which you have in front of you that I want us to spend a few moments on. This is a very good translation. It's from the uh, NIV, the most recent version of the NIV. The NIV has lots of things that we regret in certain ways, but there are certain passages which is get spot on and and brilliant translations, and this is particularly one. They must have had a great debate about this. Verse 4 is the key. The word translated appointed, appointed the Son of God in power, is generally and traditionally rendered declared. If you have almost any other Bible version in front of you, including the ESV, which you often use, I'm sure, it says declared it doesn't say appointed now this is not a, a recent thing declared is the translation that's used going way way back past the authorized version past the geneva version right back to the latin versions and so on and yet 
it's very, very strange because this word in its seven other appearances in the New Testament is always translated appointed or its equivalent, fixed, determined, never declared or anything near it. And so you might reasonably ask why traditionally has that word been translated declared? Why not appointed, as the NIV puts back here? I think the answer to that is, um, is a, a doctrinal one, because from the very earliest times, translators were afraid that it would sound heretical. If they translated it as must surely have occurred to them as the most natural translation, if Jesus was appointed the son of God by virtue of his resurrection, was this not a denial of his eternal sonship? He has always been the son of God. Was this not, and there was a very common heresy in the early centuries of the church as they worked out exactly the personhood of the son of God, who he actually is. Uh, there was a heresy called adoptionism, um, which simply meant that the father adopted Jesus to be his son. Um, he came into the world. He was an ordinary man. He may have been the Messiah, but he was still only a man. But at this great point, maybe the resurrection, the father adopted him as his son and he becomes somehow divine. And uh, I'm pretty sure, and I'm not alone in this, obviously there's a lot of scholars to say the same, but this is a reason why this translation was adopted and said declare, we say declare, don't say, don't say appointed. But I think because they had problems generally with translating this passage, this fear is absolutely unfounded. Verse three, which you'll see here, regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, regarding his son, verse three teaches that Jesus was already the son of God when he came into the world and met the messianic qualification of being a descendant of David, which he had to be, great David's greatest son, he had to be that. And uh, this has been proved, of course, in the gospels that his human lineage was exactly what would be expected of the Messiah who came. But verse three in Romans one says, yes, he's already the son when he comes into the world. Um, if you're getting lost, let me put it very simply. Verse three in Romans one is about Christmas. And verse four is about Easter. At Christmas, God's son took on an earthly life in human flesh. He did so quietly, obscurely, and in total humility, indicated by the fact that he came at night. The shepherds were watching their sheep at night, weren't they? All was dark. But then at Easter, what a glorious contrast. When the dawn comes, when the sun rises, it's literally as different as night from day. The Lord now takes on his new heavenly life, no longer appointed the son of God in weakness, in the humiliation of his flesh, but now appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul is saying. And it's because of this that is now open, uh, that everything now flows throughout the rest of Paul's letter in Romans. The resurrection doesn't merely declare that Jesus is the son of God. In other words, it's not merely God authenticating Jesus' ministry, saying, well, I'm going to prove that what he said was right by bringing him back to life. It's not simply that. 
It's not simply um, giving the stamp of approval to what Jesus did upon the cross. Of course, that's true. That's what the resurrection does. But there's far more to it. The resurrection bestows on Jesus a whole new status. He has now, by the resurrection, by virtue of the resurrection, been appointed the Son of God with power. As Paul says in verse 4, he is now Jesus Christ our Lord. His glorification has begun. Soon he must ascend and receive his full reward. Soon the reins of the universe will be placed in his hands. Soon he will shower the Holy Spirit who raised him on those he died to save. And this, uh, I believe, is the truth that brought all those to repentance and faith on the day of Pentecost. No wonder the resurrection lay at the heart of Peter's preaching. And of course, as Paul's, of Paul's preaching as well. But that's how he saw it at the beginning. Do you remember when Paul was um, converted? Do you remember the famous story? He's on the road to Damascus, um, full of fury at these Christians. He's determined to arrest them, put them to death uh, if he possibly can. And then he has that terrifying encounter uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, this blazing light which knocks him from his horse and physically uh, blinds him. And yet, what do we read? As soon as he had recovered from this terrifying experience with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, we read in Acts 9 verse 21 that at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Of course he does. This was what turned everything. The fact that he realized Jesus is the Son of God as a result of having seen the risen and glorified Christ. He understood immediately what the resurrection implied. And um, we haven't time to look at it in detail, but if you were to turn, we've looked at Peter's longest recorded sermon in Acts 2. If you were to look at Paul's longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts, you'd be turning to Acts chapter 13, when Paul is in a place called Pisidian Antioch. And again, of course, there the resurrection is the central theme. And he preaches on the resurrection um, from texts from the Old Testament, no doubt texts that Jesus had uh, passed on to the apostles. He preaches on the resurrection from Psalm 16. He preaches on the resurrection from Isaiah 55. And, but he begins by preaching on the resurrection from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is uh, the great resurrection psalm or the great coronation psalm uh, where um, the son of god is crowned by uh, his father it's uh, the king and crowning his son um, to sit upon uh, the throne it's an amazing psalm and um, paul says having quoted from psalm 2 he says we tell you the good news what god promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. I remember having difficulty with that, and I know you're looking at the commentators and you'll find they find difficulty with it as well. In what way? Again, is this not a problem? Theologically, 
doctrinally, when Paul speaks about the resurrection and says, you are my son today, I have become your father. Not at all. You really understand what Paul is writing about, particularly in Romans 1. But Paul, the day of resurrection was the day when Jesus was appointed the son of God in power, when he began to take the reins of the universe in his hands. We, 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 we have problems because we separate the resurrection from the ascension and the exaltation. The resurrection, I always think of it as a three-stage rocket. The, the resurrection is the first stage of the rocket. The ascension is the second stage. And uh, the entry into glory and seating at the right hand is that the third stage of the rockets. It's all one continuum here. It's all the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul sees the glorified body of Christ. He doesn't see uh, the pre-ascension body that was shown to the, uh, the 11. They had to see what they recognized and could affirm that it was the same body. That would have been no good to Paul because he hadn't seen probably the first body, the uh, essential body of Jesus before the, the resurrection. But there uh, he sees this uh, glorified body, post-ascension body of Christ, and it was far more than his um, own unglorified body could take. Anyway, he knew it was Christ. And uh, he understands now that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by the resurrection, he was appointed the Son of God in power. Now, you know, I've said all that very quickly, but it's well worth reflecting on. Let's return now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and work out what all this means to us if we begin to take this seriously. Um, back in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll, you'll notice how um, Paul, in demonstrating the truth of the resurrection, he describes all these different appearances. He gives quite a number of appearances because it's such an important doctrine. He wants to make sure that it's clearly attested. And um, he mentions some of the individuals and groups to whom the risen Christ has appeared. He appeared to Cephas, which is, of course, Peter. Kepha um, is the Aramaic name for, for Peter. And he appeared to um, the Twelve. That's an official title. Jesus, those hand-picked disciples who have been with him and trained by him from the very beginning. And you notice, of course, in the book of Acts that even Judas's replacement, and it has to be a replacement because his number 12 is symbolic, just as there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament, there has to be 12 apostles in the New Testament, and that 12 and 12 are so significant in, in the book of Revelation and so on. It's a very symbolic number. And the replacement for Judas was Matthias, and even Matthias was handpicked by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, because they put it up a lot. And they said, Lord, you must choose who the 12th disciple is to replace Judas. And so Matthias was chosen and they witnessed the resurrection. And then there were 500 people at one time who witnessed the resurrected Christ. We're not quite sure which um, occasion this was. Perhaps we don't have any other reference to this particular occasion. Quite probable. Um, and then he mentions the appearance of the risen Jesus to James, that's not James the Apostle, but James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then he says um, he appeared to all the apostles. And that may be a, a wider group. The word apostle means messenger, um, literally, in, in the original. And maybe this was a, a very privileged group 
um, who became messengers because they'd seen the risen Christ, and we know what their message was, the message of the resurrection. This was the what an apostle had to do, witness to the resurrection, not witness to the cross, because quite frankly, only one of the 12 had been present at the cross, um, but they were all witnesses of the resurrection because this was the vital thing that they had to declare, that Jesus was now appointed the Son of God in power. And uh, that's what they took around with them. It was the message of the resurrection primarily, seems to me, from the New Testament. This is not diminish in any way what Christ did upon the cross. Everything that we know and learn, I'm just emphasizing this because it seems to me this is somewhat diminished uh, in comparison with how it should be emphasized when we understand our faith and when we declare it. And then finally, and I want to just close with this really, is, is this remarkable testament of the Apostle Paul. He says, well, you know, all these other people were shown the risen Lord Jesus before his ascension. But then me, I wasn't around then, but Jesus picked and chose me after his ascension, after his glorification, he appeared to me so that I too could be a win witness of the resurrection. And this is what he says, that it's so touching. I, I love these words. Look at it from verse eight. And last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. That may refer to the timing that's come um, after. Um, the word's are an interesting one. The, the word um, for abnormally born here um, refers to um, a baby delivered prematurely. And that could be a, a deliberate act. It could be a violent act of abortion or it could be a spontaneous act of miscarriage, but it's a child who is delivered before its full term. That's how the word was used. Um, and commentators say, why did he call himself this? Was it an insult that the Corinthians used against him and all sorts of things? I don't think so. I think it's just, he is going to be emphasizing his utter humility in the light of the glorious appearance of the risen Christ to him and all that meant to him. That when he saw the risen Christ, when he knew it was Jesus, he said, he's the son of God. And that's what changed his whole heart. He, he worked out all the doctrines of the, uh, the death of Christ from the scriptures and from being taught by the Holy Spirit. And he's delivered them to us. But what he first learned by seeing the glorified Christ was this is the son of God. And he was just filled with incredible humility and preached and proclaimed, as I said earlier, from the beginning, here's the son of God. And um, in the light of that, he sees himself in all his smallness. He says, if I describe myself as like just a, a baby born belong before its term, a baby that's got no right even to survive and probably won't, uh, just the sheer terrible fragility of a, a, a human child being born like that. I think it's in, in line with his, his human statements. Here, Paul rejoices in his weakness. Um, look at verse nine. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And um, Paul rejoices in his weakness. He, he knows himself to be more weak 
more pathetic, more ineffective than even his Corinthian opponents uh, had claimed. His legitimate apostolic authority has been questioned throughout his replies in the early part of this letter. In 1 Corinthians, constantly, you're aware of the fact there were people in Corinth who were saying he's pathetic, what, he's not really an apostle, don't listen to him. And he's having to combat that. And he's having to say, look, I am a, an apostle. I've been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I have legitimate authority. He's having to assert his authority. But what he's saying here is it's not innate. It's nothing to do with me, essentially. No, if I look at myself, I'm more weak and pathetic than even you think I am. I know myself for what I am. I'm just like a, uh, a baby born before its time. with Very little chance of surviving. But Paul rejoices in his weakness, in order to glorify his Lord, as he always does. And having seen the risen and glorified Christ, and having been commissioned personally by him, Paul knows that all he is, and all he has become, and all that he's achieved, is all of grace. And this is what he talks about, at least in our tradition, we understand the meaning of grace, we understand that grace is the undeserved favor of God shown towards us who deserve only judgment. Look at verse 10. Grace appears in verse 10 three times. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see that as one of those who saw the glorified Christ, all he could think about and that he was not burnt up by the glorified Christ is the sheer grace of God towards him. And that wonderful statement there, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All of us can say that. I hope you're all thinking that now, even if you're not saying it out loud. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I'm not what I was. By the grace of God, I'm not what I will be. But whoever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you've suffered, whatever you're looking forward to, Whatever your joys and your sorrows, whatever your regrets that have haunted you throughout your life up until now, you can say with absolute confidence in the light of the risen and glorified Christ, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because although you have not seen yet the glorified Christ, you will one day. And you'll have glorified eyes so that you won't be blinded. But one day you will see him. You haven't seen the glorified Christ yet. But you have heard of him. And blessed are those who have believed and not seen. And you know what he means. That he is the son of God. That he has been appointed the son of God with power. And you know that your sins have been taken away because you have put your faith and trust in him. And that is the most immense and wonderful privilege. And all you can do is say, I deserve none of this. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. Knowing that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, surely we must humbly and joyfully submit to his lordship, relying always and only on his grace to keep us full of faith and hope and love and usefulness to his wonderful kingdom. Surely that must be our response as we follow Paul in his great realizations. Let the resurrection be right in the forefront of our minds. Let's dwell upon that. Not too late, Easter's gone, but hey, let's remember the glorious and wonderful resurrection of Christ. And let's remember the doctrine, the teaching behind the event. This is what it teaches supremely, that he has been appointed the Son of God in power. And throughout this gospel age now, the Son of God is in utter control of everything. And therefore, we have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to.